0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the eCommerce Odyssey podcast. I'm here with Sean Brandt from Audit, and we're gonna talk about removing barriers to the online purchasing experience. So Sean, let's uh, get down to basics. What are the most common problems that you see in online purchasing experiences?
1: I think one of the most common things that we see when we're looking at sites and and where we end up saying a lot of the same things when we're auditing websites is we find that because Shopify makes you know, launching an e-commerce site so seamless now, right? Go in, pick a template that suits your design aesthetic or your brand aesthetic, launch the website. Um, they've made it so easy that there's very, very minimal need to change much, right? So a lot of brands go into the Shopify ecosystem, they pick a template, they launch the site, and they start running ads or driving traffic to the site. And the assumption by a lot of brands is that because it's, you know, Shopify, this is their bread and butter. This is what they do every day. The assumption is that that template has been optimized. And, you know, in a lot of cases it hasn't um, Shopify does not have a team focused on these types of things. They don't tell you how these themes convert in the back end. They don't really tell you much of anything about that side of the business. And so a lot of brands don't really have an eye on that or how that's going to affect their sales. So most of the problems that we're looking at is augmenting Shopify themes to remove those barriers or just communicate more clearly. Right, a lot of these themes are designed to be aesthetically pleasing, but the experience hurts because of that. Right, so they're very minimalist and clean and beautiful, um, but they lack certain information or interactions that that you need to have. Uh, you know, a clear purchase experience.
0: Okay, because I mean, obviously, the the um templates are designed they're not done by Shopify themselves are done by third party designers. I mean, how would you go about, presumably you want to start off with a template, which can, you know, choose the best converting template to begin with. How would you go about doing that to, you know, to get a good grounding point?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, there is a lot of brands out there that, that kind of hang their hat on that, that claim that like it's the highest converting Shopify template. Um, and so there's a few out there. You can literally just Google like high converting Shopify themes and you'll find a bunch. Um, and they actually will talk about how their themes convert and what the average is and that kind of thing. I think using those as your base point is a, is a great way to start. And I think to your point, you're right, like Shopify is not designing these. Um, but, you know, they are going through a pretty rigorous process with these designers. We were involved recently with the Shopify uh, theme development program and helping teach some of these designers, um, some conversion tactics, tactics. Um, but this was the first round of themes that actually had that stage in the process. So before that, it was just like, you know, does it check all the boxes of what Shopify needs in the theme? I I thought that Um, just anyone could just design a theme. (laughs) I mean, you, you definitely can, but to get it in the store and approved is a different story. Yeah. Oh,
0: that's okay.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: So I mean, I I also had a thing was I was trying to find the fastest um, theme, and you know we looked at some of these themes and we ran it through some you know the online speed test, and it didn't seem that the ones that said they were the fastest seemed to be really any faster than the ones that said they weren't the fastest. So it is it is hard to tell, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think speed is so relative uh, to the brand, right? I think we deal with. Uh, brands in in, in all spaces in different different facets from, you know, brands with a thousand SKUs to brands with one SKU. Um, And I think the, the speed of the site and that template really depends on the content you're inputting, right? Like a lot of brands get a theme and then they add six apps, you know, six Shopify apps, they upload a thousand images and it's just instantly just sucks all the life out of the speed of that site. Um, because none of those things are optimized. So it really depends on all those different triggers within there. Um, you know, if you run a speed test and you look at those first items when it when it lists like things that are bogging the site down, the most usually the very top one is it says unused JavaScript. And all that's saying is the brand owner tried a bunch of applications, right? They installed a uh, subscription app or a reviews platform or whatever. And then they changed. And they left it. The, the old code is just sitting there. They don't use it anymore, but the old code is sitting there. So, probably the most common speed issue we see with brands is they they try all these applications out, and then they don't properly remove them. So that app is still there, bogging the site speed down, and they just never remove it.
0: How is that? Because I thought you know, because I'm, I'm not a developer, right? You know, you can go into yeah. you can you can install an app, and then you can remove the app. Does it not necessarily remove the code? <sighs>
1: I'm not a developer either, but from what from what um from from my experience, no, right? Like you can dis you know dis whatever disable it, right? It's not on on the site, but um yeah, the code base is still there.
0: Okay, so it can really slow it down. Yeah. Okay, so and you'll see you go, that. You'll would see you see that, in, that in the theme? Would you have to go into the theme and see it? Yeah. In the th- okay. So you could go and see the okay, that's interesting. So what I mean, how would you go about it? So how do you know that you have a, a problem with the site or what would be, what is, what is first off, you know, so what is good performance? How do you know? What can you benchmark against?
1: Yeah, I think we see everything from when, when we talk about good performance um, it, a lot of it depends on how much of your traffic is paid, right? We deal with some brands that have a seven, 8% conversion rate, which is crazy, but yeah. these are brand, these are brands that have built, such an organic following that their traffic is all hot, right? Like it's all people that are looking for them. They didn't come from an ad that they randomly saw and clicked. So their conversion rate can naturally be higher because they've already built trust with the customer, right? The customer's yeah. coming in being like, I love this brand. I need to buy this like Apple, versus like that. yeah. Like most of these, they, they would have a high conversion rate, but they also have a high AOV. So it, it probably balances on the, Brands that we mostly deal with that are 95% paid traffic, right? They're not organically built. Um, they're just buying traffic and slowly building their brand up over time. The conversion rate, you know, a good conversion rate can be 2%. Um, and that's mostly just because your ad strategies dictate a lot of that, right? How, how good is the traffic you're getting? How accurate is the traffic to, you know, the user actually wants what you're selling. Um, so when they get to the site, are they clicking through or are they bouncing? So the conversion rate is very, very you know, highly dictated by your ad strategy and and who you're driving to the site. In most cases, um, but I, I would say the easiest way on the on the website side to define a good or bad experience is to stop looking at it yourself. I think a, brand, a lot of brand owners they just they get too close to it, right? And they look at their site and they're like, "Oh, that's great. This makes sense. Everything everything's perfect." Um, because they know the product, they know this pricing, they know, like they know everything about it. So it's very hard to see issues in an experience or a communication strategy when they know the product so well. So the first thing I recommend people do is just go and run simple um, user testing and they don't need to be your demographic. They don't need to be what, you know, if you're selling female clothing, it doesn't even matter if they're women. We just need to see where a user gets caught up in the experience, right? Where do they stop and hesitate? Um, so if you give them a task, like go from the homepage to, um, checkout on a pair of jeans, for instance, and you just watch that user. Like I, when I say user testing, I mean, this can be your son, your grandma, anyone, or actually usertesting.com, but go in and just see where people get hung up, right? See someone coming fresh to the site and where they get hung up. That'll teach you most of what you need to know. And usually those patterns that you'll see in the issues will arise within five tests. So okay. you, don't need, you don't need a thousand people. You don't need these, like give it to five random people, different ages, it doesn't matter. Give it to five random people, give them the same task and just see where they all stall, right? They'll all get there eventually, unless you've got a total you know, mess. They'll get there eventually, but you'll see them get hung up on the same stuff and stall at the same points uh, in most cases.
0: Hey, because I read, uh, I mean, the famous, I read, uh, was it Rocket Surgery Made Easy? Is that one of the, have you heard of that? It's a, no. No, it's a, it's a usability book, a was written by, mm. I mean, he, he suggests, the guy who wrote it suggests that um, you spend half a day, a month doing usability testing with people, you know, do it every month, do it regularly.
1: Yeah, um, and it's honestly, it's, we, we a lot of the work we do at Audit is with brands directly, but a lot of it is with designers, Right. I, my previous life was uh, we owned, I owned a a product design agency. We had a lot of large clients, a lot of design staff, and we had no, you know, we had no background on conversion, no knowledge on conversion. And a lot of what the client wanted had nothing to do with conversion. They wanted to be the nicest website out there and, and be on brand. And they had all these other metrics that the top management had that none of them were focused on conversion. And so what a lot of our job is is going and helping design teams focus on these things, because even the design team that builds these things doesn't look at them. Um, They miss them. So I think it it really can be as simple as just having real people go in, test it, and things that you thought were really clear are probably not that clear.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you, I mean... um... It's like a process you need to go through in order to do this to systematically, regularly do use and um, fix these problems. What, what would you recommend?
1: I think one of the major problems that that we see brands run into when they contact us is they say, "Hey, you know, our our conversion has dropped, you know, twenty percent in the last six months. We need to change our site. We need to. They want to launch a whole new website. They want to launch, you know, change everything." And I think the biggest thing that biggest piece of advice I can give to brands is to make changes incrementally. So how I would approach it is do some usability tests, right? Or speak with a, someone, uh, you know, uh, in the CRO space or someone that understands, you know, some of the low hanging fruit that may be causing problems, put those into a queue, right? And start testing them. So let's say that I came into your site uh, or, or you, found, you saw an issue from a usability test, just work at them one by one. So, you find one issue, split test it, right? So, A B test the current version with the version that would be updated based on your usability test or my opinion, for instance, and see what wins. Once you've solved that, move on to the next one. And I think it's really the only way to approach these processes is just step by step, one by one. Doing too many things at once, it's impossible to know what's working and what's not. Um, And that's why we never recommend fully overhauling a website because. If you launch it the next day and this conversion is double, great. But if you launch it the next day and the conversion is half, you have no idea what what worked, what increased conversion, and what l- lowered it. Right. So you almost have to revert back to this old theme um, after all that work. So most of it is just making sure that it's incremental versus you know these big bulk changes all at once.
0: So what are these low hanging fruits that you of which you speak? If you had to know <laughs> the. <laughs> You know, what are you what are you what are the problems that's that's you know, that people the traps that people fall into speed like, what about speed and things like that
1: I mean speed is definitely I would say the absolute lowest hanging fruit is speed um, we see a ton of brands that you know we we work with site speed optimization companies and we even do them sometimes ourselves but I think most of these issues that brands run into things they can fix themselves um a lot of brands just don't optimize photos right to be the right sizing and and weight for a website Um, and then like i was saying before you know applications that they don't remove properly i think that's probably one of the lower hanging fruit is speed but um outside that the the biggest stuff that we're commenting on in a lot of cases is is copywriting those are probably copywriting and the nice thing about copywriting obviously is that there's no you know, you don't need a developer to update copywriting. Um, and so when I say copywriting, it is, you know, there is kind of a formula there uh, when it comes to conversion. And that formula is as simple as just, you need to be speaking very clearly. So a lot of brands we deal with, especially in the D2C space, so direct consumer brands, they they focus and they and they leverage marketing fluff a lot, right? So it's a lot of like taglines and, you know, really sexy copywriting but it just completely skips what the hell they do and what they sell. And same thing goes when you're labeling a button, right? Like if I, if I'm going through a homepage and there's 10 sections and every single button says shop now, yeah, they all take me to buy something, but none of them are specific, right? Maybe the first section was a featured product. Second section was bestsellers. The third section was new arrivals. The fourth section was men's you know what I mean? And every button label says shop now if they were all labeled according to the headlines for the section they are right so shop work jacket shop new arrivals shop best sellers the user didn't even have to read the headlines in order to know where they're going and so you've reduced the friction of saying in the previous case clicking now they were going they would have had to read the whole section now they could just glaze over the whole page and know exactly where they can click to get to these sections so super small thing but that increases conversion, because users are on your website for seconds. You have their attention because most brands are driven by traffic, uh, paid traffic, you have their attention for a split second. So you can either communicate clearly or lose them. That's kind of the rules these days. You either communicate clearly or they're gone.
0: So what would you say in terms of like copy? I mean, do you have any kind of guidelines for what kind of you know what is good sales copy, the length, the the kind of
1: language? I think that the biggest thing that I think brands fall into this trap of is they, you know, going back to your example of Apple, they fall into that Apple model too far where they're like, instead of telling users what they make, they're telling them what problem they solve, which can be super effective. It can be right. But if I come to a site and I've never heard of the brand before, I've never heard of the name before. I don't know who the hell they are. I don't know where the products made. I don't know anything about them, right? It's not Apple. And it says, get a better night's sleep. That's great. That's awesome. Right. It's a nice You're, you're, you're stating the problem that they solve, but because they're not Apple and I've never heard of them before. I don't know if they sell sleeping pills, magic mushrooms. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if they sell comfortable pillows, better mattresses, softer sheets, uh, you know, air purifiers. They could sell a hundred different things that help me sleep better. And because they're a no name brand, like every, you know, any brand that's not a household name, that, that statement holds no value. So I think that's probably the biggest trap brands fall into is you have to find that balance. Like it's okay to use those types of, you know, marketing tricks of stating a problem and what your solution is, but you also need to be super clear with what you make. So when you're writing headlines and you're writing a, you know, a one, two punch of a headline and subheading. You need to make sure that if you have that marketing in there of you're trying to draw them in, make sure you also finish by telling them exactly what you're selling, not keeping it vague. Because if I come to your site and you tell me I can sleep better, and then you don't tell me well, how, I'm already off. I'm, I'm leaving, right? And I'm, I'm not saying me personally, I'm saying most users, right? If they don't get communicated too clearly, you've lost them because you only had them for one second. So it really
0: it's it's the same old it's the same old in a way. No, there's nothing new under the sun. You need to you need to communicate, you know, communicate. No, to... it,
1: it it no there's nothing. I mean, in terms of like the perfect hacks to conversion, no there's nothing. I think that the the amazing thing to me as someone that's been doing this for over a decade is that you know, we sell these reports, these these CRO teardown, you know, UX reports. And 95% of the content we put in there When the, when the customer gets it, they're, they're super impressed. They're very excited. They're like, this is amazing. But the second thing they say is how the hell did we not see this? It it's all common sense. Like you don't need a marketing degree. You don't need to read, you know, read a hundred books. It's all common sense. And that's the best part about positive user experiences is, and that's why I say, go ask your mom to audit your work. Like just get a random person who's never heard of you. Doesn't know what you sell. And give them a task to do on your website. Can they get through it? That's all you need. You don't need professionals. That's how you can identify problems on the website. You know, we do a great job of identifying those things very specifically and redesigning them to show you how that would look in a new state. But identifying them, you really don't need a you know expensive marketing team or a UX team to do those things. You just need to, you know, watch someone go through your website that isn't your team, right? And that's new to the site and see where they get hung up.
0: So, what are the tasks that people that you would tip you would get customers to go through on a website?
1: I mean, if you're if it's me and I'm I'm running an e-commerce brand, the only thing I care about is how am I getting them to add to cart faster, right? So that's just communicating the products that they need faster and getting it added to cart. And how am I getting them to add more things to cart? So you know, get increasing their AOV. So the tasks I would give them is sending them to three different starting points, right? So most ad strategies are pushing users to their product page, their collections page, right? Like bundles or something or homepage. So I would send someone to the homepage and say, you know, let's say they have hundred products and they're in fashion, like go buy a t-shirt. Just see where they go, right? Do that from the collection, do that from the product page, do that from the homepage. Um, same thing with uh, you know, add multiple items, right? Some sites you'll get to the product page, you'll add an item, and then you got to go. They'll force you back to the home page to start again or to your navigation. You know, how well is a brand surfacing upsells on the product page? Things like that. Um, but it, it's it's kind of a loaded question because it just it depends so much on what the brand's goal is, right? Is it to some of our clients they sell thousand dollar products, some of them sell ten dollar products you know some of them are in batches some of them so it's it it really is different brand by brand but the main goal of every e-commerce brand is to increase aov and increase revenue
0: okay so what about i'm going to ask you some just questions about, um, about usability now well i've got your yeah. attention payments right you know you've got uh on shopify you've got the shopify payments which i mean we use shop, we have a shopify store we think the shopify payments is because it's so well integrated with shopify and you know it's it, it, Used across multiple sites, we thought that was a good thing to use, um, and we also offer PayPal alongside it. And we think those two options are enough. What do you think are the best payment options or the, the the essential payment options on e-commerce sites, or the ones that convert the best? There you go.
1: Yeah, I think the key when it comes to payments is well, it's kind of a two-part question. Which ones convert the best? It depends so much on the users, right? Like every user is going to have their like like me for instance i use apple pay for everything i can't remember the last time that i used i i don't have a wallet right this i don't have a wallet this is it and so i use apple pay for everything so if there's an apple pay option it's it's ideal for me but most you know a lot of people love shop pay a lot of people love paypal the key when it comes to conversion is to not overwhelm the user so when they come to add to cart if you have add to cart buy on paypal buy using apple pay buy using shop pay more options klarna yeah like, you're just, you're just crippling them with the decision paralysis, right? So pick one that's your like, pick, your front runner. That's fine. Have add to cart show that they you know, show that there's an alternate option like PayPal or whatnot, and then just have more, you know, just say more options available in checkout, right? Let them yeah. know that there's more if they need it, but don't overwhelm them completely on that product page. Once they get to checkout, you can surface as many as you want, right? They're they're about to fill in 30 fields of information. That you can surface a few more payment options, but on the product page, you have one goal: is to click that add to cart button, right? So you, instead of surfacing one button, you're giving them six. You're you're hurting conversion in most cases, not helping it. Um, the other so thing I you think I would it's say important is, to have
0: a few options on very few options on the product page, and you're not so fussed about how many there are at the checkout. Yeah. And, uh, and
1: then, yeah. I was just going to say that there's a difference between some of those instant pay options and breaking it into payments. So, like afterpay, Klarna, what you know, every country's different which one you can get. But um m- depending on your price point, offering those payment options of like pay, you know, or whatever, those are a huge trigger for conversion. Um, because you know. you're, you're you're asking someone to buy a hundred dollar item and mentally now they're buying a $25. item. So your conversion is going to go up versus PayPal pay or Apple pay. You're just giving them another way to use their credit card. Right? So it's helpful, but you're not changing the buying experience. Giving them payment options is changing the buying experience. So I would say those are, to me are more important than the, you know, PayPal. And, And there are options within those to have payments, but you know, some of the ones that are built for payment structures are much more efficient.
0: So can you see a lot of D2C brands? Um, what is, you know, because I mean, I run a kind of a traditional retailer. We sell lots of different other people's brands. I mean, there seems to be, what is the kind of the difference between a D2C brand and a kind of traditional kind of retailer site? What are the, the, the different things that they both need to focus on?
1: I mean, for me, the answer, you you might not like the answer, but the, 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 uh, the differences are are nothing. I mean, for me, like the things that we call out on D2C brands when we're doing an audit report, they're the same things that I call out on a SaaS product or the same things that I would call out on, you know, a band selling tickets. It There's no difference. It's either easy to do the, like easy to get through the experience or it's cumbersome. And the the mentality is the exact same in both scenarios. Is, or, am I putting up barriers along the way or am I removing them for the user? Um, you know, full disclosure before we started, like audit is a, you know, a CRO brand. I've never done CRO in my life ever. I, all I did was I applied UX tactics and us method, UX methodologies of removing barriers and making sure that users have a clear path to a certain goal. And it increases people's conversion. I've never actually like people call audit a CRO firm. We've never done CRO in our lives. And we say that to our customers, like they, they, book calls with us to say, Hey, you know, found you out. We looking to hire a CRO agency. And the first thing I say is we don't do CRO. We fix your user experience and that increases conversion. Don't get me wrong, but we don't do CRO. And the reason that I position it that way is because it's, it's that same, like, like I said, we can audit D2C brands. I, we can audit a retail store. It's the same mentality, right? But okay. If I'm walking through a retail store, is there, am I reducing friction or am I making it easier to purchase? It's all of the same mentality and, and methodology just applied to you know an in-person experience versus an online experience. I know that's not a really direct answer.
0: No, no, that's good. Cause it's really, um, so I've got a last question for you. Um obviously, you know, that the, you know when I first started doing e-commerce people were building their own templates and, and sites were a lot more different than they are now. I think yeah. that, the, that the experiences are much more similar I mean, mainly, I think you know, really, since mobile phones came along and they all had to fit a certain, you know, certain yeah. screen sizes. Do you think that usability on the whole has got better, or is there still the same old problems there used to be?
1: It's it's kind of a mixed bag. I think that overall usability has gotten better, but usability has gotten better, in my opinion, because devices have gotten better. I don't think websites have gotten that much better. Um, You know, they're just devices make it really easy for people to access things and to, you know, to go through online experiences on a mobile device, for instance. Um, In terms of like, when you think back to 10 years ago, when someone launched a responsive website, the things that were on an e-commerce website in 2010 and the things that are on an e-commerce website now are almost the same. Things have been shifted a little bit, but no one's really done much to change that experience, and I, in my opinion, that's not because it's working. It's just it, the, the entire culture of design and, and UX is built off of you know copycat, right? It's someone sees this work they what they think is working, and they just keep you know. There's just a slow evolution of change. I would say the only major change that's happened in the space in a decade is Safari moving their you know their input field for the URL to the bottom instead of the top right and now you start to see websites that have bottom menus instead of a top menu right uh, so with your yeah.
0: so i'm not a, menu... i'm more of a chrome guy but that's true they have haven't
1: they yeah and i think you're gonna see i mean it when you like that's a perfect example of how slow you know technology and, and ux and design is to change like sorry you can't see my phone because i got a stupid blur thing on but like When you imagine where your hands are on a phone when you're using it, like it's, it's so stupid that a nav would have ever been at the top. Like why, why would my navigation ever be at the top of my phone? It'd be like, remember the old iPhones, they had the back button in the bottom middle. Yeah. It's like, it's like if Apple would have designed with that button at the top, it makes no sense at all. And that's just kind of proof that these design changes are just grandfathered in designer to designer. They don't make sense that that navigation on a website and you know on a browser should have never been at the top it yeah. just that's how it was on desktop so that's how it ended up being on mobile and yeah no so many things
0: would just some guy had to come up with an idea at some point and that's how they did yeah. it they, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so the gauge of railways i mean supposedly the gauge of railways is determined by the the gauge of a kind of a coal truck and that was determined by the the you know the gauge of a of a of a cart, which is fundamentally about the width of the two horses. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, so that's what you end up with. It makes any sense or not. I mean, trains are yeah. really just the width of two horses or the, yeah. you know, fundamentally what two horses could pull along. So that's yeah. how you get stuck with that. That's how you get stuck with that. railway gauge. Um, yeah. So like, it's been, I've got one final question for you. What are you, I like to ask a fluffy question at the end. What are you nerdy about? What have you, what have you, what are you into? Any really yeah. good books recently. <laughs> I,
1: I haven't read any great books recently. I honestly, uh, this last year has been a bit crazy with audit and I haven't had much free time to do anything outside of work, but, um, I'm really nerdy about, um, print and, and menu design. So oh. I have a, I have a really bad, like kleptomania habit where I'm at a, a real man, like, my menu, whatever my menu is, I'll, I'll take it. And I have just like this insane collection at home of thousands of print menus. Um, and I think as a designer, I'm so used to looking at digital references and inspiration pieces when I'm designing, but I, there's something about having these tangible, you know, different type stacks and fonts and ways of displaying information in print that I always reference and look to for inspiration. So I have kind of like a library of, of various hospitality print pieces, whether it's coasters or I don't like display them or anything. It's more of just like a library that I use. Yeah, but.
0: But I know you mean. I mean, some things are very, I mean, there definitely is something about physical things. I mean, I, I've noticed, you know, the, the actual, you know, the book or the menu or something, which you really can't, you know, there's something, you know, something about them which one, I think will never quite go away. So I have I yep. don't tend to read physical books anymore. I just have my e-reader. But yep. you know, I don't know. There was a certain baby with bathwater thing sort of going on, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with um <laughs> uh, with I was in a pub recently and and uh, my eyesight's not as good in the dark anymore. And they had, you know, and this is was, this wasn't a pub that young people would go to. This was like a pub for someone like me, they did nice food, nice yeah. beer and stuff. And they had like the the, the menu. And, you know, pubs are dark, and it's kind of lit by by candles. And there's tiny, tiny, tiny writing. It's like everyone was squinting on these menus. They just couldn't read it. And I thought, that's bad usability. I thought, why are you a whole page, and you're using a little bit in the middle, and you could just make it bigger, and people could read it? Why have they done it so
1: There you go. There's a usability test. They should be listening to
0: you. Yeah, I think they need one of your audits. I'll send them over to you. Yeah, let them know. I'll audit
1: a menu. No problem.
0: No, it's good. um Lovely to speak to you, Sean, and uh, good luck for the future.
1: Yeah, you as well. I uh, appreciate you having me.
0: Okay, thanks. Bye bye.
1: Ciao.